political will because there is still fear um, because for so long people were buying these gambles that Russia is almighty and they like look at their army they they still can't cross the river in terms of advancement and while all the news are talking about you know this strike in a center of Vinitsa which killed you know kids with their mom they cannot make one meter one inch on the ground in areas which they stay they want to you know uh, they plan to invade remember that donbass they, they even could not finish luhansk there are still a couple of important points in luhansk region that under that are under ukraine control as they cannot go they cannot advance even one inch in other areas so they are running out of uh, time and out of munition and out of useful idiots. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Um, I need to go find a picture of that meeting of Putin in Turkmenistan because that sounds very amusing indeed. Um, peace for Ukraine. Uh, press the Malaysian MH was Bash proxy the Russians. And this declaration by the High on 17th July, the year Russia's war again and recall that uh, Russia to a possible zone to the such trust uh, the war for the genocide recognized uh, Russia has Thank you, Mr. Chris. Hope they exhibit the good just on a, Nick? Just on a point of order, um, uh, Peace for Ukraine, you started off with from the Council of Europe, uh, which caused me to uh, prick up my ears because I used to work for the Council of Europe. This is for the Council of the European Union, and unfortunately, there are large numbers of very, very, very close overlaps uh, in the names of these various bodies. So this is from the European Union. It's not from the Council of Europe, whose uh, principal uh, involvement in the war so far has been to expel Russia. Uh, the European Union can't expel Russia. but uh, um, So just to make that clear, this is the, this is the European Union. Uh, and, you know, round of applause it, it's what they have to do uh, it doesn't indicate anything new but it's nice to uh it's nice to see that they are marking this anniversary and i hope they'll mark many more anniversaries thank you nick. thank you peace thank you peace for uh let's go to john ridge and then adrian and back to nick and then john john ridge thank you gentlemen uh good morning good afternoon good evening uh ladies and gentlemen uh, there's a couple things i wanted to mention uh just briefly in response to uh uh, Alex's point regarding the uh, the two U.S. destroyers currently operating from Spain. We, we've had the Montreux discussion so many times. Uh, it feels like slightly beating a dead horse at this point, but the issue is there. We don't have we don't really have a way to get those two destroyers as it currently stands, given the Turks, given Montreux, to actually get them into the Black Sea, because if the Turks. Um, if, if the Turks agree to let those uh, two ships through, the Russians will demand to let their own ships in. Um, and so unless we manage to come up with some convoluted scheme potentially involving, you know, selling some ships to some third party like shell corporate entities in one of the Black Sea states, i.e. Bulgaria or Romania, that, unless we were willing to attempt something like that, uh, unfortunately, it does not really appear that there's currently a way to get any uh, U.S. naval vessels uh, into the Black Sea as it currently stands, unfortunately. Um, I would just like to briefly note that the U.S. never signed the Montreal Convention. Yes, that, that is entirely correct, Doman, but 
my understanding is that we do generally abide by it, even though we have we're not a uh, a signatory of it. Exactly. So this is a this is a courtesy uh, that the U.S. thus far has uh, uh, has offered, uh, but it's not uh, but it's not mandatory for them to to abide by. And Turkey doesn't have under the Montreal Convention, you know, powers by the convention to uh, to to limit them in that respect. It's it's complicated, we know. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the other two things I wanted to uh, mention, the reason I came up was, um, so uh, one brief thing regarding some some news regarding Ross Cosmos, and then I got a I got a question for Axel about the uh, about some aircraft. So the announcement was made by NASA yesterday that it looks like they're going to continue um, uh, their attempts to reach a a seat swap agreement with Ross Cosmos, whereby um, in exchange for uh, Ross Cosmos giving um, essentially uh, NASA a seat to put an astronaut on board Soyuz for transportation to the International Space Station. We will agree to give uh, Ross Cosmos a seat on um, uh, Crew Dragon flights or eventually Starliner um, once that's fully operational for flights to the ISS. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the history, just a brief summary is that after their time in the space show for about um, in 2011, up until uh, was it 2020 when Demo 2 happened for about that nine-year period, uh, the United States had no domestic capacity to uh, transport astronauts um, to orbit or to the International Space Station. And so uh, the Russians did, uh, via Roscosmos' Soyuz uh, launch vehicle and associated crew capsule. So for the better part of uh, about nine years, um, we were paying the Russians about, I think, 40 to $50 million dollars uh, per seat to transport American astronauts to the International Space Station. That finally ended in 2020 when um, uh, Crew Dragon became operational from Crew Dragon launching on Falcon 9, both from SpaceX, became operational. We uh, regained our domestic capacity to transport astronauts to orbit to the International Space Station. Since that happened, we stopped paying them, I believe, for seats on Soyuz. We've continued to fly um, in the single astronauts on certain Soyuz flights, but I believe we've stopped paying them. And the original intent was that the Russians would be compensated by us uh, in kind, giving them a seat on either Crew Dragon or Starliner flights. Uh, it's, the, the agreement has kind of been stalled out for a while and kind of stalled out even more once the invasion began, but it was just announced yesterday that there, an agreement is nearing completion, which is deeply unfortunate. Because it is, in my opinion, it is expanding uh, cooperation with Roscosmos in a way that is not um, that is above the absolute minimum level necessary to maintain the ISS in a uh, you know in a safely functional state, and we we should be seeking to avoid um, like the plague any unnecessary expansions of our cooperation with Roscosmos. There, there is quite frankly no reason to deal with them or interact with them in any way beyond, again, the absolute minimum needed to keep the International Space Station functioning. I believe Scott Kelly, he, he was uh, asked about an interview and he had some, some strong words and was asked, and was stating that NASA uh, should hopefully reconsider. So I just thought I'd update y'all on that. Um, the other point I wanted to make was for Axel. Um, I had read a report that had come out, I believe, either yesterday or the day before, um, I believe it was Michael Weiss. Um, he had been reporting on some conversations that he had with some Ukrainian Ministry of Defense uh, personnel. 
and they have apparently expressed, if this report is accurate, a greater interest in platforms such as the uh, the F-15 and the F-A-18 as opposed to, say, the F-16, uh, primarily because um, they view the F-15 and the F-A-18 as more rugged, and they uh, both of them are twin-engined aircraft, so the loss of a single engine is not necessarily crippling. Uh, to the same extent it would be in an F-16 as that aircraft only has a single engine. And they also expressed interest in specifically um, two-seater aircraft in particular, as they would like to be able to fly with both a pilot and address a weapon system officer in as many cases as possible. Um, and I believe they also made some references to um, potentially uh, the F-15 and the F-A-18 being more rugged when uh, attempting to take off and land under less ideal runway conditions. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. And I believe they also expressed uh, interest in the Gryphon. I think that might have been in a separate report for along similar lines, I believe. Axel, do you have any um, clarification to add to that or uh, any more info on that point? No, I think... Did Axel cut out for just me or did we, everybody lose him? He cut out for me too. I thought I lost everything. Um, I will let him know that he's... Yeah, no, not really. We we heard me out of your question of can you hear me? You? Uh, I only heard you. I think it's only letting pronouns through. So unless you can structure your answer in purely pronouns. <laughs> I, I heard an I. I, I think my, my theory is the fact. Mic check. Um, hi, Nick. Sorry, I was um, laughing too hard at my own silly joke. And um, we'll, get, we'll get Axel back. Domin, have we uh, updated host phones to 9.17? I'm not sure. I think you have to ask uh, Axel that, because uh, it's currently running on the phone that's next to him. Hello. So, can you hear me? Axel, can we have a clarification? So, is Sergio coming in 15 minutes or in an hour and 15 minutes? He is coming in 14. In 14 minutes. Okay. Good. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened, but I tried to try to answer the question kindly put by John, and it somehow blocked me getting back on uh, audio-wise. Probably because some uh, they sort of say the gods of Twitter decided that my answer would probably not be worthwhile. Uh, yeah. So no, I think the people who in Ukraine are currently making decisions have very very good command of both their territory, their airspace, and what they want to integrate. And uh, so far it'd be for me to make a judgment call. Uh, would I ever deny um, taking F-16s if offered? No, of course not. Uh, but as to the survivability, it's certainly true that uh, twin engine and uh, two-seater aircraft um, have a bit going for them. Uh, having a weapon system officer, Vizos, is uh, definitely suitable. And uh, the F-18, is an exceptionally good aircraft. Unfortunately, there is a few of them, um, more or less in limbo between Australia and uh, formerly a US leasing company. So, um, well, maybe one should get them. And I think training people on them would be fantastic. And having the F-18 with its uh, capabilities um, in flight there, absolutely suitable. But more importantly, the F-15 Strike Eagle, if the United States were to be willing to sell them to Ukraine or put them under the Lend-Lease, that would be astonishingly helpful. So I do subscribe to that argument. The Griffin is a fine aircraft. It's a bit, you know, a bit loud. But other than that, there's very little to criticize. Um, all of these weapon system platforms, if and when flown, 
would uh, tremendously help the Ukrainian arm, uh, armed forces and their air force. No question. But was there another question, John, which I may have not heard at all, given the audio trouble I was... No, you you, you hit the nail on the head. I was, as, as a brief follow-up to that, obviously the, uh, the F-15 was originally designed as an air superiority fighter, whereas the F-16 was designed as a, a multi-role fighter. Um, in terms of uh, uh, close air support and, and uh, you know, uh, ground support ability, um, the F-15A, the Strike Eagle, obviously that's, you know, kind of been a redesign for, uh, with a focus on, you know, this multi-role, you know, strike aircraft capacity. Um, how does that kind of stack up to the F-16's ability? Is the F-15A, you know, comparable? I think the F-15 Strike Eagle is an astonishing piece of kit. I mean, Mac 2.5, uh, loitering capacity it can uh, given the a massive amount of ammunition and ordnance it carries uh, it can do a whole run um, and support targets it can loiter around and stay and hover for ages um, if i recount the the stories of our american friends in afghanistan and the likes uh, calling in air support from an f-15 strike eagle is exceptionally helpful because you know what's coming is the end of days for the other side. So, um, yeah, and the Russians have nothing against it. I mean, they have absolutely no cap no capacity to fight um, a sensible squadron of these. So, yeah, what should I say? In terms of weapon system platforms, uh, if you can if you compare them all through, uh, I would not deny any of them. But uh, the F-18s uh, are dear to my heart. <laughs> the F-15 Strike Eagle, if they can get it is a, a fantastic addition to them. But certainly it, it has more quality as a Strike Eagle than in the other um, designs it had before. Thank you very much. Just uh, one final brief follow-up and I'll, then I'll stop talking and let some other hands go. Uh, do all of these aircraft, you know, be it the F-15, um, uh, the F-16, the F-A-18, um, or potentially even the Gripen, um, they have the capacity to take off and land from like highways and other, um, shall we say, less than ideal locations, correct? Yeah, but even the F-16, I mean, you can find videos on the interwebs, uh, whether it is uh, in Singapore or elsewhere, where they've been tested for uh, start and land. It's just um, uh, you need more space for one or the other. So you can uh, get off the ground um, pretty damn quick with an F-15. Whether the road network necessarily in Ukraine is perfect for that is a different matter, but you could certainly get it down on, um, say, a sensible tarmac. You just need a you need a road without pop. So one of my my takeaway from that is that you could not uh, land or uh, launch an aircraft from a highway in the United States. In other words, I think you're underselling the United States. There's a really yeah. wide, long, straight highways, I believe. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, for of course, yeah, yeah, no, of course. I, I do understand this, and I, I I get the drift. But still, I think you shouldn't be underselling yourself. And I tend to believe that currently there's uh, roads in. Uh, say, within the proximity of the front face, which are obviously in significantly worse condition. And in certain areas, uh, especially in the agricultural, uh, more rural areas, and away from the main interstates, uh, main yeah. roads in Ukraine, you would find a lot of roads which are absolutely not suitable, but probably good enough. But you have to be lucky. You can't just land anywhere and everywhere. You're not in Switzerland. And there you have mountains. So anyway, I think you get Madrid. Okay, Axel. Uh, thank you, Axel. Can you please check the the? Uh, uh, there's some messages with Walter. We're confused whether because the graphic and the stuff were said to us is not is inconsistent. Basically, um, 
can you check if it's actually in 10 minutes or in an hour and 10 minutes or sorry, in seven minutes or in an it's hour in seven, seven minutes, minutes. Sergio, okay Sergio and i were chatting before, okay i will i will tell it's in seven minutes <laughs> okay i think walter heard you good, oh, good. Um, excellent let's uh let's go on then to i got i forgot who it was i think it was then john and then adrian and then nick but i might be wrong sorry you went for so long um then john oh yeah thank you okay so i fully subscribe and agree to what uh, Kaftera was talking about before. Uh, I mean, Russia is not that, it's not a big economy. I mean, uh, I, I just checked it. They, they spent 62 billion uh, USD on defense last year. How much of that went into uh, pockets and yachts and mansions around the world? So probably, I mean, 62 billion is just a inflated number. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's time to call the bluff, I guess. Just... <laughs> We're not scared anymore, I think, at least not me. And then uh, another comment on, on this uh, Montreux uh, convention. I mean, wh why do we need to follow that rule, uh, honestly? Uh, isn't that just playing along with... Uh, it's, it's, it's fine. The rule does not apply to Americans and Italians. So Yeah, that doesn't matter. I, I mean, my opinion is that uh, who cares? <laughs> why, why play along with rules uh, when the other player is not playing according to any rule? I, I know we, we shouldn't be as bad and all that, but I mean, now... The, we're talking about uh, a war and genocide. I mean, it needs to be stopped. We can't. We can't let our own rules stop that. Stop us stopping it. If you get my my point. Preventing genocide is more important than certain rules. Um, John, I, I'd be kind of interested in clearing the hands that we have, so we don't uh, have too many left. If that if that's all right by you, um, I think we'll return to Montreux in the coming days. Anyway, again. Um, right, let's uh, let's go to uh, Adrian and Nick because they had their hands up by far the longest. Adrian, uh, hi guys, uh, I had a longer point, but I will change topic to a specific question uh, because I know it's like five minutes left. Uh, so um, first of all, uh, um, although Ukraine definitely needs an upgrade in its road network, uh, I was recently in cars on. Uh, several stretches of Ukrainian road in different places that uh, to my unexpert eye looked without potholes and perfectly fine to land an airplane on given the right circumstances. So uh, I think they can figure it out. Let's just get them the planes. I had a specific question because I hear that um, uh, some uh, units, uh, Ukrainian units are still making appeals for uh, DJI Mavic free drones. Uh, and I, uh, but I also heard on the space or read it randomly on Twitter. I really can't remember that DJI drones. The Russians have a way to jam them. So can someone clear that up for me? Can they really jam the DJI drones, or does the Mavic Free have some sort of uh, better encryption and the uh, jamming doesn't work on it? Any thoughts? Thanks. Does anybody know about drones? Yeah. So uh, Mavics are still widely used. Yes, Russians can jam them. The thing is saturation. Uh, there is not uh, electronic warfare units on every one kilometer stretch of the front line. Uh, and you need these drones uh, for reconnaissance, for small unit reconnaissance, for mortar fire um, directions and correction of the fire. So these, yes, they're jammable. Yes, essentially they're toys they're being weaponized toys. But the toys 
uh, in decent numbers, they can do the solid reconnaissance work. And even though they're easily jammable by Russian countermeasures, these countermeasures are not omnipresent everywhere. So at this point, these DJI Mavics are consumables, essentially. They're similarly consumables as uh, artillery shells or something else. Not in a such extreme way, but still. They're being lost in large numbers and they're being um, reutilized, adjusted, fixed, uh, somewhat adapted, and again, used and lost in large numbers. And new ones are being purchased, sent to the front line and used against. So again, uh, you should look into that as consumable. Unfortunately, yes, they're expensive, but the war is expensive undertaking. And uh, defending one, uh, oneself against an illegal invasion is unfortunately also an expensive undertaking. So yes, they're being used. Yes, they're being jammed. And yes, they're useful. Thank you, Walter. Uh, and Nick, go ahead. And in the meantime, we'll probably try to get uh, Sergio back up. Nick? I, uh, I put my hand up a long time ago to say something when M was talking about conspiracy theories and I've kind of forgotten what it was. So I will just say that uh, greetings, greetings from Parma where the US 8th Carrier Strike Group is in town. We have the Harry S. Truman parked out in the bay. Uh, if some some people, please don't all do it at once. If you click on my Twitter profile, there's a link in there to the webcam on my balcony. And if you look across there, there's a sort of uh, dark bar visible on the, the little bit of water that is visible from there. And that is USS Harry S. Truman. We have 6,000 American sailors uh, in the port of Palmer. And, and doubtless they'll be spreading out to some of the ratings will be spreading out down to... Uh, Magaluf and Arenal bringing uh, dollars and joy to all concerned. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm kind of a little bit bummed because I'm still stuck indoors with COVID, but they're here till Tuesday and I'm hoping to get out either uh, maybe Sunday or Monday evening and walk downtown and see if, uh, see if any of them are up for uh, uh, yeah, a, a, a little bit of uh, non revealing any sort of non-classified information they can. Uh, the eighth carrier strike group has been, uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean for much of this time. Uh, as we've noticed, they can't get into the Black Sea, uh, but I'm sure they've been, um, they've been, you know, keeping an eye on things for it. So yeah, uh, welcome Uncle Sam to Palm. And uh, I see that Sergio almost has just joined us. Sergio is Excellent. a freelance journalist. Um, he, his work has been published in New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian, Reuters major media assets and Sergio has been reporting relentlessly about the developments in Ukraine and Russian uh, unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. Sergio, welcome. Uh, can you hear us, Mike check? Hey, good evening or good morning. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Walter Report. Sergio, can you give us like a brief and to our audience a brief introduction where you currently are uh, how for how long have you been doing this in Ukraine? Just overall, uh, please do. Hey, so I'm Sergio Olmos. I'm a U.S. journalist. I've been in Portland, Oregon for the last four years, uh, covering news there for different outlets. Um, right now, I'm in Kharkiv 
Ukraine. And I arrived in Kharkiv in late March. So I've been here in Ukraine for like 110 days or, or so. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, this will work better as like a Q&A because I, I don't want a monologue, but um, uh, you, let me know if you want to know about my background or, or anything like that. No worries. Maybe, you maybe, you yes. wrote a few articles. You wrote a few articles about uh, Ukrainians, including one Sergei who went from uh, Portland back to Ukraine. Maybe we can start with that. Yeah, that was uh, for The Guardian. I was writing about the far right for them. But, you know, when the Ukraine war started, it kind of, you know, all news was about Ukraine. And, and I, too, especially was just I couldn't, you know, my, my friend, Justin, yeah, who's on with you guys tomorrow. He was in uh, Donbass when the war started. He texted me that night. He, he was like, or he called me rather, like, hey, man, uh, the war just started. And I was with some other journalists in the U.S., like covering the the um, like the freedom caravan. It's like a truckers protest against COVID. Um, and I was just thinking like, man, um, you know, I this is an important story. And how can I cover it from the U.S.? And so I just um, I started looking into uh, just Ukrainians in Oregon, because there are some, you know, of course, and I had heard about uh, Sergei, uh, who was planning to return to Kiev, and he had two, uh, two daughters there and an ex-wife in, in Vancouver, Washington. And I met him like, like I, like that night, I like messaged people who knew him. And I was like, hey, I got a phone number. And I ended up like calling his ex-wife. And she's like, who are you? And what do you want? And like the word got through to me, like, okay, meet at this coffee shop tomorrow. And the next day I, I meet Sergey and, uh, you know, through his brother, he's translating, you know, that Sergey's going to leave to try to go to, you know, help with humanitarian aid or join the army in Ukraine. He felt the, the, the call to return to his country. And within like 40 minutes, I was like, okay, can I get on the plane with you and follow you? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I, I followed him to New York. I didn't follow him to uh, Poland. But um, maybe a couple weeks later, I was uh, on a plane to, to Ukraine myself to, to try to cover the war. Um, and, and Sergei is still here. He's uh, still running humanitarian aid uh, missions. Um, he is alive and well. And that story of, of him leaving his family, was, it was incredible to watch. I mean, I, I cried, uh, like writing it. Um, if you see the Twitter thread on it, I can, I can post it under this um, I'll, I'll share the Twitter thread. It, it is incredible to see him. I, I caught him on the last night with his daughters and it's, he took him skateboarding and it's just like really heartbreaking to see him kind of decide to leave his family for, you know, country. But his daughters were like, his eldest daughter rather was like, you know, he's doing a brave thing and I, I support this. And it's just, it was just so shocking that like a young, you know, teenage daughter would have that, like, I don't know, just the, the firm grip on her morals and, and kind of, ideals and to be able to like communicate that and have the stoicism for it it it, it struck me and it, it meant a lot to me um I, I even called my dad after writing that piece it was it was just it was really uh uh it really touched me yeah i read it when it came out so when uh, when you and i spoke a few days ago i, I had to think about it again and then uh, put it back up uh, at a later stage because um Sometimes the simple stories or seemingly simple stories are the most impressive. And uh, as you ended your article at that time on the note of the daughter being proud and before and you, uh, the photos which were posted with it. Sound check. Hey, guys, sorry, it dropped out. Uh, I 
Nick, you're the first person I heard in a while. Welcome back, Sergio. I think there is a massive loss of comms Sorry. for many people. Sorry, guys. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's my end. I, I, have, I do have to say, uh, earlier today, all of our GPSs here in Kharkiv, like the, the journalists I was rolling around with, it said we were in, in Belgrade, so I don't know what's going on with like cell reception today, but it, it is acting a little strange. Yeah, it's uh, also Twitter gives us occasional uh, surprises. So uh, just for everyone in the speaker box, try to stick on one type of connection, either 4 or 5G, i.e. mobile or Wi-Fi. If there is a interchange in between, it also complicates the connection. Nonetheless, uh, Sergio, you're in Kharkiv. Can you kind of give us an... Uh, understanding how does it feel like right now because we keep hearing that Kharkiv is under constant rocket attacks or artillery attacks every every basically every day or every evening uh, despite kind of the the front line being pushed away but it still remains the thing and Russians are shelling residential areas uh, can you give us an uh, impression how does it feel like to be in Kharkiv right now yeah so uh First, I was here about a month ago uh, or so when, you know, when the news of the Battle of Kharkiv had been won, right? Like the Kharkiv, the city center, had been uh, free of artillery range from the Russians. They pushed the Russians back. Uh, there was this sense of like triumph. Um, I, I came immediately afterwards and the city was, you know, very empty. I mean, like it felt like a ghost town and there was like the only restaurant really that I knew that was open was protagonist that everybody would go to. Um, now, it, you know, there's a, like, oh, if, there's a bunch of restaurants open and there's a lot more, there's a lot more people here. Um, it feels like it's coming back. It feels a little like Kiev um, uh, in like April. It, it, it feels like it's coming back. That being said, it, it is still, Kharkiv is not like Kiev, right? Kiev right now you can go to the bars and it feels lively. It feels like you're in, Sometimes, honestly, it feels like you're in Prague. Like, it's, it's an amazing place with just people are living their lives. Kharkiv definitely looks like it is in the middle of a war. I mean, you, you'd notice this in Kiev, you know, at least when I got there in March, early days of April, that there was no, like, children around. And there was very few women. It was, like, all guys in the city uh, when you would see people walking around. It's the same thing here in Kharkiv, I feel. It, it is a lot of men here, not a lot of children. And, and not a lot of women. And um, I think in terms of life, I, mean, I talked to Ukrainians here. Um, some of them I've, um, I have, you know, I have spent like, you know, evenings with having dinner and stuff. And, and it is like, people keep showing me pictures of their family, like their kids back in Germany or, you know, uh, their wife. And they, there's a lot of loneliness for the kind of men that I talk to who are here. And, you know, some of them are doing humanitarian aid some of them are working as fixers. Some of them are with the military. Uh, some of them, you know, just don't refuse to leave. They they see it as like, a, you know, uh, th this is their city and they're not going to be pushed out of this city by the Russians. But a lot of guys, especially, there's just a loneliness. And, and I talk to guys who say that, like, you know, when they're not working, like when they're not out there doing aid or, uh, you know, working as fixers, that there's a, just a real dread and loneliness. Um, and that doesn't help when the, that you can hear shelling and you can hear explosions at, at night you'll hear explosions and um, a lot of the time that's like missiles getting shot down in the daytime you'll hear distant artillery um, and, and the city center itself you know is not getting hit with artillery right this is out of artillery range but 
Kharkiv still takes rockets, it still takes missiles, just like, you know, many other cities in Ukraine. Uh, but Kharkiv is, you're not going to go a couple hours without hearing some shelling in the background. And so I think for the people who live here, it is a very, very, I, I think it's, it's an incredibly difficult psychological, like, um, uh, weight because there, the city is not back, right? There's a, there's not, everything is open. It's not like, like a city functions with culture. You go to your coffee shop, you, you know, talk to people, but you know, a, a lot of that stuff is, is not there yet. And so it's a strange place um, because um, if you're here, I mean, there's just a lot of things you're dealing with that you, your normal, you know, your normal community that you would go to, to, to talk to is not there, right? You're not going to the bar to talk with your friends like, hey man, I just saw this today. Like it's so, it's like a lot of pressure, weight and trauma on people. And there's, and the regular functions of community are not here, you know, they haven't totally returned yet. Uh, it is still a very dangerous place. Um, and so that's kind of the big impression that I get, aside from like, you know, the military stuff and all that, we could talk about all that, but the real kind of thing I've noticed just as a person is, um, it's, it, it is a hard place to be, because um, you do miss, you do realize how much you get in a city that like you don't even realize, you know, you don't, you don't account for how much that conversation you have at like your coffee shop matters and how much just a little hangout with and a meetup with friends matters. Thank you for that. Uh, I apologize for dropping off in between. I don't know what you heard last when I said it, but uh, um, as Walter and Domino Dowd will have explained to you, sometimes we have uh, technical issues thanks to our beloved Twitter. Nevertheless, um, now moving on from Kharkiv and where you've been there recently, what have you seen uh, in and around Kharkiv, the city? Where have you gone most recently? How did the last one or two weeks look like? So I just came back from a frontline village today. I was uh, with a group of humanitarian volunteers and, and a military escort. Um, we, I saw the, um, it, it's Ruska Lozova. It's just outside Har Kharkiv. Um, it, it, the, there the humanitarian aid volunteers were delivering uh, packs of, of meals. They were dropping off in one location. And then from there, a man who lives in the village would, uh, drives up and kind of, he takes it upon himself to deliver it to the different residents. Residents there don't leave their house. It's a recently liberated uh, uh, town it is to get there it's military controlled you know you got to pass checkpoints that unless you have some official business you're not getting through and when we were there um you know it's really really uh sad to see i mean that there is a lot of there's a lot of craters there's 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 no people walking around there's just animal like a dogs and cats roaming around and uh we the volunteer got out of the armored vehicle to go knock on the door of this man and this man comes out like surprised that anyone is you know, coming out during shelling to, to go give them food. And then they're unloading the food and another man comes in his really beat up vehicle. Like the car had a flat tire, had clearly taken a bunch of shrapnel. And this is the man who's like, I'm here to like distribute this stuff. And, and it's just like incredible bravery uh, of this everyday uh, townspeople. We um, got a flat tire and we're trying to repair the tire today. While while uh, we get word that you know shelling is going to start and and indeed it does start and so we all got to run in the van take off with a tire that's you know losing air pressure and just bolt it down the road because uh, the shelling did did start around us um, it wasn't close but it 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 clearly was uh, coming um, closer uh, and on this road uh, one of the soldiers had to lift up his gun because a uh, incoming car had Russian license plate. And 
he didn't know what that what that was about but you know we got out of the area and back to Kharkiv uh which felt a lot safer after that um in, in comparison and uh and yeah that was like the everyday experience of these volunteers and soldiers who who have to do this otherwise people there don't um what was the experience as to the those areas which have been freed up and how the civilians have been treated under occupation yeah my experience there is is i have much better experience that in, in Chernihiv um here in Kharkiv uh, in these villages like it is very difficult to interview these people because you know when they come out of their house they're coming out to grab the food and go back in um uh why well, had a much easier especially for me i'm a i'm a print reporter right i'm not a photographer or a videographer like my you know i chose to be a writer um and that means i spend a lot of time talking with people and that also means because i don't speak the language i have to have a translator with me and these conversations take oftentimes you know hours and so i i can't really conduct these things under the risk of shelling it's it just not safe for the you know for me for the person I'm talking to so in chernihiv after the russians were pushed away um uh, they were repelled back across the border I talked to uh villagers who lived just 20 miles from the the Russian border and uh I had a I had you know I had heard mostly that you know it, it, and this is different villages different people but mostly the same experience which was that when the Russian soldiers would come it was a lot of young men who were like unsupervised like you know teenagers they would just steal uh, everything they could i mean i had uh, family showing me like look like look at this drawer like you see any underwear in here nothing you know look at this you know uh you know look at these appliances like they're all ripped out like you know just uh, that these soldiers would come in and just see basic things like you know a a like a tea kettle and take that um that was pretty rampant and i saw the same thing in bucha and erpen i mean the the signs of plunder are you know everywhere you go where russians have been there is signs of plunder and i have not seen that uh i have not seen an area where russians have been that there hasn't been signs of plunder i mean it's it's very clear that when russians take over um the civilian populace is basically you know uh, can expect to to lose everything of value and then i heard the darkest stuff of course um i i had i talked to a man who i i talked to a few men who um this is in uh in 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 uh, and stop me if this is not interesting but this is in, in some villages near the the Belarusian border uh Russians were going door to door trying to figure out who had helped the Ukrainians target a, a column of of armored vehicles and um they had been intimidating the men uh in one case one man told me that like they brought him and his son kneeled him down and was like you know this one soldier was like you know I'm going to shoot your son if you don't tell me you know who is who is you know giving away our positions and they took his son into another room and like shot made him believe his son was dead and he's like aren't you embarrassed that you killed your son and just really grim you know so his son was alive you know they didn't shoot him but just really grim you know really awful like psychological torture there was a lot of that and 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 then there was the other stuff which is much much worse i i talked to one man who um uh his stories the wall street journal ended up finding him like a month later and publishing a very great story on him he was a uh, again in one of these villages he was rounded up same as other men he was with his two brothers and one of his brothers was a veteran uh, of of uh, 2014 and uh this the russian soldiers searched through the house and they found 
you know, a, a gun and they found his like military bag and they were like, okay, yeah, you guys are getting taken away. They take him away, they torture him for three days. And, and really like the, the torture, you know, I, an example of why it was, it, hearing this was so tough. The, this man would describe um, that the Russian soldiers would beat them and then offer them like borscht and be like, you and they would say, you should be grateful that we're feeding you, we treat you so well, you know, and then beat them and then offer them a cigarette right and then beat them and it's that kind of very cruel kindness with the absolute brutality that makes it just just absolutely awful to hear right like um uh, and so on the third day the this man told me that he him and his two brothers were taken out to a field uh put on their knees um blindfolded and uh he heard a gunshot and the soldier said you know that's your older brother and then another gunshot and that was his younger brother he he inferred and then the guy said then mine came and he got shot all three brothers were thrown into a ditch started burying them but this man survived his the bullet went through his face like it went through his cheek out his ear and he was alive uh and he was being buried alive and he said that he tried to like like hold his breath as long as he could using his elbows to try to like stay like like in position inside the 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 ditch he said he lasted about 20 minutes. That's what it felt like. And then he climbed out. No one was around, hiked it back to his village. Um, when I talked to him, I could still see the exit wounds. And we went to go try to find where his brothers were buried. We couldn't find it that day, but we did find the Russian camp where he was uh, tortured. And uh, like there was still blood on the floor. I mean, it was, uh, it was absolutely awful to see. He was walking around showing me like, yeah, this is where they beat me. Um, and this is just one man, right? Like in a village who's, who got, you know, survived an attempted execution with his brothers and was buried alive. Like that is just one man in, you know, in all of Trinidad that, and it, it's absolutely astounding the level of brutality the Russian soldiers, you know, uh, impose on like a daily basis. Yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to hear such stories. And it's important to understand that it happened not just in uh, one village, but it happens all over. Ukrainian territories that have been occupied by Russians and uh, we hear those stories pouring in by trickle from from the south as we have heard them coming from the northwest of Kyiv when Russians were occupying the territory and then eventually Bucha transpired so we have hundreds of Buchas or something similar all over Ukraine it's a pity that 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 kind of fades into the background and uh taking somewhat as a granted or sorts but again stories that like the one that you mentioned they're crucial and extremely important uh essentially civilians shot executed some of them managing to survive and it's like it's blood chilling to hear a story about human who was shot survived and crawled back from his grave essentially and uh, all of that is being perpetrated by Russia. And uh, that's the harsh reality. That's the reality check for everyone who who actually wants to know what's happening in Ukraine. Have you heard any more of those stories specifically in the Chernihiv area? We, we are hearing a lot of stories about mass uh, rape, um, kidnappings, abductions of children, stuff like that. Have you like assessed what the situation in, in that regard? Yeah, I I, uh, I have heard uh, other stories of, of torture. 
Um, I ha the, the rape stories are honestly very difficult for me um, to do. For one, I don't speak the language and I, I should make a note about like my work here. No, I'm a journalist, right? I'm an American journalist. I don't speak Ukrainian or Russian. I, I don't know the history of Ukraine. I have not lived here before. And all of that plays into how I limit myself when I go into the field and when I talk about Ukraine. When I go into the field, the, we had a situation in, in Trinity where there was a father whose daughter was raped and, and abducted. And it was difficult choice, but basically like we, I, I you know, we, we were not gonna pursue talking to him because it, it, he had already talked to a journalist. It was tough for him to even do that. For me, I, since I don't speak the language, it is a, is a bit, you know, it is a bit, um, I wouldn't say degrading, but it is it, it is not appropriate for a translator to sit there and relay what he just said when he's reliving the trauma of his daughter being raped. So there are certain stories that I will purposely pull away from myself from, right? Especially if other journalists kind of are in the area and are doing it. Like if I speak the language, I can interpersonally like connect and and but there it, it, I do not want to have somebody sit there while they just explain something awful and wait for the pause for a translator to tell me. And so. I don't know if you know that makes sense or you guys have thought of that, but in my my work, you know, I I won't pursue stories like that uh, to avoid that scenario, and I because I don't want to inflict unnecessary trauma, and and I want to you know talk to these people with dignity. I, I don't want to um, put them in that situation. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, specifically in the on the subject like that. Um, it's the best way, obviously, is to to communicate in the way that it's. Uh, easier for 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 those who became victims but also it's important to to spread the knowledge of what is happening by all means that are possible um that said i think prince has a question to you let's go with prince good evening sergio from here in portland oregon hey how are you i'm doing okay um i'm glad to see you on the space and and i, I really appreciate what you just said about not not being so eager to get the story that you would put somebody through that trauma another time just to get the story. I think that's a, that's a, a very good thing. You know, the story has gotten out and uh, there's no need to re-traumatize the person by having them relive that story. But what I wanted to ask is, you know, I, I know that you've been to some of the sites of, of, bigger events like the mall bombing and things like that and and can you share um any experiences around that and uh, i just want to thank you very much for coming onto the space it's uh it's sort of fun to have somebody who i know from the 2020 events um in the space here thank you hey well thanks um uh, uh on the mall in kremenchuk i went the day after and i saw you know what I saw was all had already been destroyed and I was, I only got to see, like, I was not there when the attack happened, right? I mean, there 24 hours later, I saw the investigators working to try to really hard. And um, something I that stuck with me there was there was a lot of insulation that was everywhere. And it occurred to me and Justin, who I was with, that like we had been breathing in asbestos all day, probably. And some of the firefighters had masks on and some didn't. And it just occurred to me, like, the the quiet bravery to, like, that these firefighters were, like, 
dealing in a toxic area all day long to try to find you know uh, any victims or, or even just the bodies for the families to have a proper funeral um you know that that is just something that it stuck with because i know these firefighters you know they don't have time to like properly suit up for asbestos you know they don't they have to they have to work fast they have to work hard um and uh and that occurred to me i, I it's, it's a little thing i you know probably not worth mentioning on any news report but um there's stuff like that happening all the time where people are putting themselves through incredible risks to, to do something you know to do to lessen a tragedy just a little bit and, and that really struck i appreciate that that the thing is is you know here on the walter report we look for things that that you don't read in the news reports and, and that you don't hear everywhere else and and so getting getting details like that is uh uh, something I appreciate about this space. And uh, thank you. Just thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I believe we have Martin waiting. Go ahead, Martin. Thank you, Walter. Slava Ukraini. Uh, I just really briefly wanted to thank Sergio for his um, wonderful reporting uh, from Ukraine. I, I've followed him on uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, you're you're a, a frequent contributor, Sergio, and thank you for the incredible work you're doing reporting from Ukraine on this unprovoked illegal aggression by Russia. So as a fellow journalist, keep up the good work and thank you again, Slava Ukraini. Martin, do you have a question? Um, if you do, please shoot. No, no, no question. I just wanted to make that thanks. comment, Walter. That's all. Gotcha. No problem. Hey, well, well, uh, thanks, thanks for that. And I'll be on CBC in about two and a half hours. So, but yeah, CBC is a great, great, great user. All right. Thank you. Let's go with JJ with the next question. Thank you, Walter. Um, and thank you, Sergio, for being here um, and for sharing your experiences and that of the Ukrainians. Um, I wanted to go back to the um, incredible story you just told about the gentleman who was shot and then buried alive and survived. Um, and given how traumatizing that must be for him to recount that, what do you think he most wants people to know and take away from his story? So, uh, the first, I don't know. But if I had to guess, the, the situation was we went in... April, I can check the date, but it was like, it was very early on. I mean, basically, Trinity had had been free of Russian shelling now. The Russians had left, gone across the border. We we had gone up there and to these villages that were away, you know, away from the city, closer to the Russian border. Uh, sorry, closer to the Belarusian border. The, the Why that matters is that at that time, you couldn't even like buy food in Trinity, right? Everything was like humanitarian aid. Like there was no, the electricity was cutting in and out clean water and, and food was like, you know, there was no regular deliveries. All the deliveries were from humanitarian aid organizations. Cause it was, or sorry, humanitarian aid, like Ukrainians taking stuff in their vans up there. So uh, petrol, like gasoline was incredibly difficult to get. It was rationed up there. Um, and some of the roads were barely getting demined. And so where these, where this man lived in the villages, like nobody was going up there. I, I mean, I'm sure some reports went up there, of course, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like Bucha, right? And and what happened in Bucha is absolutely awful. But I'm I'm just talking about like the geography of here. Bucha is close to Kiev. Lots of reports they would get 